from Aberdeen Investment Trusts. Hello and welcome to today's podcast on the Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust. I'm Cherry Raynard and with me today is the Trust Manager, Ben Ritchie. We're here to chat through some of the key issues facing the UK stock market today and look at how that's influencing positioning on the trust. So welcome, Ben. Thanks, Cherry. Looking forward to the discussion. We have to start on a slightly gloomy note. I mean, recession now seems inevitable at some point this year, um, particularly if the kind of worst predictions on inflation materialise. Um, do you have a sense of how severe the slowdown is likely to be? I think it's hard to tell uh, at the moment, Cherry. I think there's, uh, there are so many moving parts. Uh, to some extent, I'm not really sure that whether we have a recession or not is really the key thing. I mean, at the end of the day, that's a sort of a technical thing of two quarters in a row of negative growth. I think what's probably more important is the is the extent of the decline and the duration of which we're sort of heading along at, at zero or, or negative growth. And I think that's really the that's really the key thing. And you know there are quite a lot of reasons to be cautious in the short term, but I also think we should maybe be a little optimistic and channel our inner. Ted Lasso's about the outlook, because I think some of the things that are affecting us very negatively could also change just as quickly as they came. So if we think about inflation, for example, most of that is coming from the significant increase uh, in gas prices, which also drive up electricity prices um, as a result primarily of the conflict in Russia, Ukraine. Now, who knows uh, what will happen there? And I'm certainly not making any predictions. But if we were to see some form of resolution, even a, a modest stalemate uh, or ceasefire, you know, that could have a significant impact uh, on the prospects for uh, gas prices, um, both in the UK, uh, Europe and globally. So don't know what might happen. At the moment, we can only see the gloom, but it's possible that it could be a little bit more positive. The other thing that's been causing a lot of disruption, driving a lot of inflation, uh, has been um, supply chain disruption, particularly around a lot of the COVID shutdowns uh, in China. Again, you know, is it possible that at some point we could see a reversal of the zero COVID policy in China? Again, no insight on that. We may not do. They may have the same policy for years and years and years. But on the other hand, it could change. And when we look around globally, you know, we can see some signs of some of the inflationary pressures, particularly some of the earliest ones starting to ease, and particularly around things like freight costs, which have started to fall. That's partly because demand has, has started to weaken, partly because of the cost of living, partly because of interest rate increases. So there's a number of elements there. At the moment, the outlook looks pretty tough. I certainly wouldn't want to be a policymaker in this environment. I think it's a really, really hard decisions that are going to be made. Um, but on the other hand, there are a couple of things which could come as quickly as they could go, as quickly as they've arrived in the other direction. And I think, you know, we should bear in mind that it's not just a one-way position, even though when you look at where the UK gas price is at, you know, 575 uh, pence a therm versus uh, probably where it was about 20 uh, three years ago, um, it's, it's clearly quite a, a tough situation. Okay, I like the exhaustion um, <laughs> to be more Ted Lasso. I think that's, that's probably a good outlook. I mean, obviously, the economy is not the stock market. Um, do you have a sense of the most vulnerable sectors uh, to this sort of uncertainty over the economy? And also, you know, which are more resilient, you know, which are likely to steer a path through this environment? 
yeah, I think it comes down, Cherry, to the traditional uh, trinity of problem causing issues, one of which is cyclicality, the other one is operational leverage, and the other one is financial leverage. So where you find those three things in the same place, I suspect you're going to have problems, uh, particularly if you're in businesses that have got relatively thin margins. So if you're in a position where you're going to see a sensitive, particularly to uh, the consumer, and you've got tight margins, and you've got financial leverage, then I think you're going to find yourself in a pretty difficult position over the next six, 12, maybe even longer, six, 12 months, even longer. So that might take you to areas, certain areas like general retail. There are going to be some manufacturers who are going to find life hard, particularly uh, in the thinner margin uh, areas as well. Um, but I do think those things tend to be, particularly when you combine it with with financial leverage, those things tend to be the real killers, I think, for, for equity value. And those are very much the things which we're looking to uh, within the Dunedin portfolio to make sure that we've got companies that have got, you know, decent uh, operating positions from a margin and returns perspective uh, that have got uh, strong balance sheets and that you know, every company is cyclical to some degree, but where they're hopefully not not too cyclical and where they are cyclical, they've got you know decent margins and a strong balance sheet to balance it up. So, you know, we go into this position thinking our companies will do relatively OK. Uh, but it's not it's certainly not going to be easy. And I think anything that's uh, exposed to rapid increases in input costs from a manufacturing perspective, particularly where you're servicing big customers who are able to push back on your pricing uh, and those uh, servicing uh, consumers, particularly with you know, um, discretionary products. I think that's going to be that's going to be quite tough. And we've already started to see some of that. Uh, uh, coming through, and I expect that will continue to be the case going forward. You know, whether this spreads into something more systemic, like a, a more of a financial crisis, I think is is too is too early uh, to say at this point. Um, uh, but at this time, you know, I think it's more the sort of the first stages of, of of more recessionary dynamics led by weakening consumer and input costs. Okay, and you mentioned gas prices earlier, which which remain worryingly high with, with no real prospect of weakening, though, though obviously if there was a, um, a sort of easing of the uh, crisis in the Ukraine, that might happen. Um, where are you seeing those gas price hikes having the greatest impact? I mean, is it is it for the consumer or is it as an input cost for corporates? I think at the moment it's for the consumer. I mean, I think, you know, if you do the maths and you look at the amount of disposable income that the average UK household has, and then you look at the increase in bills, you know, if they get up to the sort of five and a half thousand pounds a year that analysts are talking about, you know, that's pretty much absorbing almost all of the discretionary income that, that people have. So that's clearly, uh, you know, an unsustainable situation in the long term. Yes, can people probably borrow a little bit of money to support their consumption? Yet they probably can do for a period of time. But, you know, clearly, you know, if that lasts for a year, it's probably, you know, I wouldn't say it's manageable, but it, but it, it, it's, you, could, you could conceive of how that could be possibly coped with in the aggregate of the economy. And clearly, it would inflict a lot of pain on a lot of people. Um, but I think if that's something that's going to persist, then that's going to be that's going to be very, very, very tough to manage. So I do think in in the first instances, it's really around the consumer. Take a little bit longer, I think, perhaps to feed into into companies. And generally, you know, they're probably better at passing that on to their customers where they're big users of gas and electricity. Uh, and they also tend to have hedging in place as well. So they're sort of smoothing out 
uh, the it doesn't ultimately change the long-term economics, but it changes the rate of pace and allows you to go away and get price increases, work hard on your costs, potentially uh, source um, uh, things from other places as well. So, you know, I think it's, it will land in both, but I think initially we're going to feel it on the consumer side and then you know, corporate input costs, that's definitely going to be an area. But generally speaking, and it, I mean, it does depend, but, you know, gas and electricity input costs, you know, they're not, they're not insignificant for companies, but they're they're not they're not probably not as relevant for their bottom line as as it is to the consumer's uh, availability of discretionary income, I would say. If we could turn to the portfolio now, I mean, August is typically a, a quiet month, but um, have there been any notable changes on the portfolio? Anything you'd highlight? Yeah, so one of the things that we've done, I mean, we've been targeting doing this for for quite a long time. So. Um, with the Glaxo SmithKline spin-off, and they were spinning off their consumer health business, Halion, we didn't want to continue holding the Glaxo pharmaceutical business. We think it's quite a challenged business, and even though it's quite cheap, it just doesn't really fit with what we're looking for. The quality is not great, the dividend's not particularly attractive, um, and I think the prospects are fairly uncertain. So we'd made a view that we didn't want to hold that. We were quite interested in holding Halion, because we quite like the consumer health type businesses, OTC type products, consumer health brands. Um, but one of the challenges with Halion was that it came out of Glaxo with a lot of leverage, a lot of debt. And again, for me, that was a, unfortunately just something we couldn't get past. So we're not going to own a company with a low dividend, even if it offers some growth, if it's got four times net that EBITDA. It just doesn't pass our quality tests. So our original thinking had been that potentially we would switch our Glaxo holding in all into Halion. But as I, for the reasons I've outlined, that that wasn't just an option that we felt actually we could do. So we moved to switch about half our position, all of our Halion and, and part of our Glaxo position into Unilever, which is, doesn't sound like the most exciting move in the world. But I think ultimately we want to have you know something that we would consider to be relatively acyclical with decent long-term prospects and, and maybe Unilever is just starting a turnaround uh, situation um, and also offering a pretty good yield, about 4%. Hopefully we'll grow a little bit as well. Um, and uh, we, we've got a little bit lucky because we we sold out of a piece of Glaxo and a piece of Halion. And then this, I don't know, you may have read about it, but there was uh, an announcement uh, or, you know, potentially of litigation around a, a drug called Zantac that both companies had sold in various forms over the years and the share prices fell quite sharply so fortunately we'd sold we'd sold at least about half our position and then we exited the rest and and the reason for that was we'd already decided that we that we didn't want to hold it and you know frankly when there's a whole lot of additional litigation concerns why on earth would we change our minds around that even though frustratingly the share price had fallen a bit more by that stage and so we then reallocated the other piece of that capital um over into um in, into unilever so we've effectively exited glaxo builds up quite a big position in unilever so when you look at our fact sheets next time you'll see that that's now quite a big holding and i'm you know think that's you know it's not the most exciting move in the world but it's you know it's relatively substantial so we've built up unilever from probably being not much more than one percent of the portfolio to being about five over the course of this year and as you know the business has had quite a few challenges that seems like a good time to be accumulating in a company which we think has got quite good long-term prospects. Okay, thanks, Ben. Now, I wonder that, that Unilever will be a familiar name to many people, but I wonder if we could have a look at some of the more unusual stocks in the portfolio. I mean, possibly um, holdings like Chesnara, Asura, Aviva, um, and talk a little bit about um, 
what they are, what they do, and, and why you're holding them? Yes, no, that that's that's a great question. So I think one of the things we set out strategically with Digit five years, five, six years ago now, and maybe even longer, was that we wanted to differentiate ourselves from the market. We were we were relaxed about being different to the benchmark. And of course we don't seek differentiation for differentiation's sake, but you know, we also believe that if we can find more interesting mid and smaller size companies that actually they they'll offer better long-term capital and income growth prospects over the over the longer term and we were very keen to do that and that was very much part of uh of, of the strategy and if you look through our top 10 there are a number of companies which you know you may not you may not know um of which three of that you mentioned would, would certainly be amongst those so if i sort of take them in turn i mean aviva um actually has actually been potentially being bid for actually this week which is quite interesting so aviva is a, an industrial software business uh, basically provides um, design software which is then used for engineers in pr large process industries so traditionally it's its background was basically software that would design nuclear power stations very large ships oil rigs that type of thing uh, and it's expanded that into other process areas such as food manufacturing that type of thing um, other other areas of manufacture um, that business has actually had some challenges in recent times um, it has been moving to a subscription model from selling um, just licenses, which dampens your revenue growth in the short term, but improves your business model long term. So that's not been that, that shift tends to not be taken particularly well by the market. And that's happened. Um, and again, it's quite a late cycle business. So even though it's end customers, you know, we've talked about gas prices, but, you know, power generators, shipping, energy has generally been a pretty good place to be. It takes a while for that to feed through into the spending plans of their customers and then into more license sales. So they've been suffering a, a bit sickly and a bit structurally. And then also on top of that, we've also seen valuations in the market take a hit. And Aviva as a software company was trading on a relatively full multiple, you know, November time or so last year. So it's faced a sort of triple whammy. Share price has been very weak. Schneider Electric, own big French um, uh, industrial process company, owns 60% of Aviva already. They bought that four or five years ago. And they've announced that they are going to look at potentially buying the rest of the company. So, you know, it's an interesting dynamic, really, because, you know, Aviva is a good business. It feels like it's at a low point, both from a business model and from a cyclical perspective. So good time for Schneider to come in and offer for it potentially. Um, but uh, I think, you know, maybe not a great time to be a seller. So something we need to have a we need to have a think about. You know, another one that we'd, we'd pick out would be uh, Chesnara, which is sort of quite an interesting little business, um, probably the smallest company in the portfolio. Chesnara is an acquirer of closed life books, um, generally at the smaller end. It's got business in the UK, but it also has a business in, in Holland uh, and in Sweden. And actually in both those markets, particularly in Sweden, it also offers new business sales as well. And, you know, it's a very cash generative business. There's a bit of organic growth that they're able to drive out of the company through efficiencies and scale. Um, but also uh, there is also acquisition led activity as well. That's probably the primary driver of the business. Uh, they've got a new uh, CEO who's come in, who's shaken the business up a little bit, re-energized it a little bit more, started to do a few more deals. And so Chesnara is currently yielding about 7%, trades at a, a quite a big discount to its net asset value. Um, it's traditionally grown its dividend at around three, four percent a year. So we see it as a very solid income stock. And then, you know, from time to time, there's a deal which gives a little bit more capital appreciation that might come through. So very much, I would say, one of the engines in the, in the portfolio for, for generating dividends. And then the final one is one of my personal favorites, which is Assura, which owns um, primary health 
care facilities in the UK and Ireland. And I like it because it's incredibly dull. So every portfolio should have an assurer in it. It's, it's the thing that is going to deliver you a 4% dividend that's going to grow at about 5% a year. It's never going to do much more than that, but it's never going to do much less than that because it's got 25-year leases that are guaranteed by the government and index link. So it's effectively, I would say, like a very high-yielding index link bond. Um, you know, and again, it's end customers, incredibly resilient and sticky. Um, it also does some development as well, and then it acquires uh, new practices, which helps a little bit more on the, on the growth side. So a very solid business, something which offers some resilience to the portfolio in times of difficulty and offers a, a good yield that continues to grow. And we're always on the hunt for businesses which can add uh, something different to the mix. So, you know, three quite different companies, an insurance business, uh, an owner of, of, of healthcare properties, and then a software business. Um, but also, I think with a unifying factor of all being pretty good companies and all ha also having you know, some access to, to differing levels of, of growth as well. So, yeah, three companies I really like, quite esoteric um, and, and companies which we have a, a, you know, good confidence in over the long term. And just finally, I mean, you, you've, you've always used the ability to invest overseas to good effect. Can you discuss what that exposure looks like today and you know what it what it brings to the portfolio yes yeah, so that's a, i think you know again a key part of our proposition that we're able to invest up to 20% overseas and i think it really brings us three things firstly it allows us to diversify big sector exposures so um, you know an example there would be owning total rather than bp or shell you know, Total passes our sustainability criteria, BP and Shell don't. So having that overseas exposure gives us the, you know, the ability to invest into uh, an, an energy stock that otherwise we wouldn't be able to get exposure to. The other thing that it brings us um, then is, is access uh, to uh, companies in sectors that we don't get in the UK. So that's another area. You know, the UK market has, has many strengths, but it, in certain areas it's quite narrow. Uh, so for example, it's it's not particularly strong in in large healthcare companies. It has Astra and Glaxo, but it doesn't have the range of pharmaceutical stocks that you might find in Europe or the US. So as a result, we own uh, Nova Nordisk uh, in the in the portfolio as well. And then the other thing that it can bring us, uh, I think, is uh, is is essentially the ability to go out there and find some really good companies, which we think in a good old fashioned investment way, Jerry, are just going to do great. Uh, so an example of that would be something like Eden Red. So again, you know, not a company that I suspect that many uh, of the listeners will have heard of, but it's a French company. It comes, its heritage is as a business that provides le ticket, uh, the, the subsidy that uh, you get to basically be able to buy your lunch or dinner uh, in France, which comes as a sort of employment and tax perk. In the old days, it, it basically had to process vouchers between employees, employers and restaurants. And it did that on paper. But today, it effectively provides closed loop payments solutions. Now, it does that with the ticket still in France, but it does those types of things globally. But it also does things like provide fuel payments for truckers so that they you know, can only spend on petrol, uh, on petrol at petrol stations, for example. And it's also started to roll that out um, uh, into other areas. It, it does the payments processing, for example, for someone like IATA, uh, the uh, airline business, uh, airline uh, organizer. And... You know, where there's relatively low volume processing, it offers something quite interesting compared to, say, a Visa or MasterCard that are, that are literally processing trillions of transactions. 
you know, if we're talking hundreds of thousands or millions of transactions, then the Eden Red technology is quite applicable. So, you know, a really interesting business. It's it's actually currently quite levered into things like fuel prices. So higher fuel prices is good for Eden Red because they take a percentage. Uh, interest rates are quite good for Eden Red because going up because Eden Red has the float that sits in cash as it uh, moves between uh, uh, employer, employee and, and restaurateur. Um, so Eden Red get to keep the interest on that a little bit like an insurance company. So higher interest rates are also quite good. And then underlying, the technology is growing, the markets they're in are growing, the segments they're in are growing as well. So it's a really interesting, uh, I would say, little business, but sort of medium-sized business, which we own, very cash generative, has had a history of paying out quite decent-sized dividends as well, uh, and something which we're very happy to have in the portfolio. It gives us something different um, uh, and something which we also think has got the capacity to deliver really good t- returns of both capital and income to our investors. So, you know, I'm a big fan of the overseas exposure. I think it gives us something very different, it really, I think, allows us to be more diverse and more interesting and ultimately deliver, I think, uh, better risk adjusted returns to our to our end investors. Um, so, you know, I'd actually be quite happy if we could invest a little bit more uh, as well to give ourselves a bit more flexibility. But uh, uh, as we stand, you know, very comfortable with that. And I think it's something that really does add a, a point of difference, but also a point of value as well. Great. Okay. Many thanks, Ben, for all those insights today. Lots to chew on there. Listeners can find out more about the trust at www.denedenincomegrowth.co.uk. Thank you so much for tuning in and do listen again next time. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.